Hello, hello. How are we doing? Welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast. This, the Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair. I'm Ali Maxwell, but George is away. He's away this week, and I can honestly say that I cannot think of a better reason to miss a Monday pod recording. She's one of our own. She's one of our own. Eva Ehrlich, she's one of our own. He's a father, and I just know he's going to be an absolutely brilliant one. In fact, I know for a fact he's already watched at least five televised football matches with young Eva. So there's a good chance she already has an idea what good shot locations are, bad shot locations. She'll probably be able to tell you how much game state plays a part in single match XG scores, all of that sort of stuff. I think I speak on behalf of everyone in the NTT20 world and community when I say congratulations to George, to Mrs. Ellick, welcome Eva and apologies to Alfie Potter, whose goal that sent Oxford back into the Football League, probably now in at number three, down one in terms of the best days of George Ellick's life. On the pod this week, express roundups from the weekend action, but most importantly, some fabulous guests. Firstly, the EFL's Young Player of the Month for October joins me for a chat. Then Andy Watson will join us to tell us about the impact of Brexit on the transfer market in the EFL, a segment we've been wanting to do for some time. And finally, a segment dedicated to the fifth tier, the National League. Let's call it... NTT 92. We've got the most knowledgeable National League writer, Ryan Deeney, will fill us in on everything that's going on in the National League, everything that you need to know about. And within all of that weekend roundups, woven in to make sure that you don't miss any of the news or any of the magnificent goals from last weekend. The time codes are in the description, so you can pick and choose which segments you want to listen to in which order. But let's start with something pretty exciting. We do a lot of things on the Not The Top 20 podcast. We're not in the habit of breaking news, but we're not averse to it either. And it turns out that with me right now is Jay Stansfield of Exeter City on loan from Fulham, or as I like to call him, the EFL Young Player of the Month for October. Hi, Jay. How does that sound? Hi. uh, Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, I'm really buzzing with it. Have you spent the time to check out the Wikipedia page that exists to log the winners of this award because some of the names of previous winners, Fabio Carvalho, you'll know well. Before yeah. that, Jude Bellingham, Conor Gallagher, James Madison, Tammy Abraham, Ollie Watkins, the list goes on. Those are just a few from the last five years. Not bad company to be in. No, it's good, obviously. It's a great award to to win. Um, and I think it's just down to a lot of hard work. And I'd like to say thank you to the team because, obviously, Without them contributing to assist and things, I won't be scoring the goals that I have scored. It's only your second month in in senior football, and it's been such a busy few months as well, hasn't it? You moved down to Exeter, back to Exeter. You've been involved in two games that have finished 3-2, three that have finished (laughs) 4-2, a 4-0 win, a a two-all draw, a change of manager as well. You've experienced like a whole season's worth of stuff in just a couple of months. Yeah, it's been quite a roller coaster. Um, 
since since I've joined, I think, obviously, having a new manager come in midway through the first month that I was here. So it was quite hard to adapt to different managers, but I think he's came in and give given me the full confidence to go on and keep doing well. He's given the confidence to the team as well, and I think that's shown definitely on Saturday when we played at home against a very big team and to go on and put a performance that we did. What's been Gary Caldwell's approach? It's unusual, really, for a new manager to step in and replace someone that's left the club because the club's doing very well, rather than stepping in because the team are are struggling. You guys haven't been struggling. So what's his general approach been? I think when he first came in, he tried to keep it as much as the same as possible. Obviously, his odd tweaks in there to what he thought he could, or what we could benefit from. Like I say, we we changed quite a lot. Um, We went to Derby. He was in for two days, I think. Um, and he come in and the character that he's shown and the way the way he was to come to a club where obviously not he wouldn't wouldn't have known as personally the players as yet. But I think um for him to come in and set us up in a way that we did to go and perform at Derby and get a, a nil nil result at like I said, such a big team, I think it was it was great from us and him. You mentioned the the three two win against Peterborough over the weekend. Did did you feel like that was significant for the team, but f- for the new manager as well? The, the way that you went about it against the team that, that, as you said, one of the the bigger hitters of the division. Yeah, I think um, obviously it was his first game game in charge at home. So I think all the players wanted to go out and show the fans what he's capable of coming in and doing. And obviously, we would like success in this season, and I think he's the right person to be able to take us to that success. Is the time just flying by for you at the moment, Jay? I, I imagine this must be such a different pace to under-23s or academy football that you've been used to over the last few years. Yeah, I think it's obviously men's football. Um, 21's football is obviously a, a brilliant standard, but I think getting the experience of playing against different teams and different players and getting consistent playing time, I think, is really important. I think just how you handle yourself off the pitch as well with recovering stuff. But yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed getting a good good amount of games in and obviously performing well. Yeah, what's it like physically? I mean, you've been racking up the minutes. The schedule is is hectic, so much travelling as well. Did you feel prepared for that as best as you could be? Or is it a case of learning on the job? Yeah, I think it's obviously learning from the more experienced players in the changing room. Obviously, it's very different because of the leagues and things. But I think the difference of like... An away game with the travelling and that lot, obviously, because we're quite far down in Devon. A lot of games are either up north or a good three hours away. So just making sure that we're that I'm ready for to play the game after a long journey and things like that. Yeah, what's the go-to on on your long journeys on your away trips? Are you playing video games? Are you staying quiet, listening to music, or are you the heart and soul of the party at the back of the bus? It depends. Um, if the game's on the Tuesday, obviously. And we travel up on the Tuesday, obviously concentrating and being ready to perform. But if we go up on a Friday, a couple of us like to sit down and play cards and play a bit of FIFA and things. So, yeah, mm. it varies. Everyone who's not a professional footballer is always so jealous of the buses that you guys get around the place. Uh, a lot better than the National Express buses that many people <laughs> get to games, that's for sure. You can't be playing FIFA on those, uh, as far as I know. Um Jay, did you know any of your current teammates from when you were back at Exeter City that they're a team with such a, an incredible success rate of giving uh, pathways to academy graduates? Um, how many of the, of the current crop that you're playing with did you know when you were younger? Four or five, I think. Josh Key, Jack Sparks, Archie Collins, Harry Kite, 
Czech Diabate. Um, we played in the same team when we were under 16s when he just joined. So, yeah, I've got quite a lot of some good relationships with people that I did have before I left. Of course, it felt from the outside like fate that took you back to Exeter for this loan period, your first taste of senior football. But of course, it was also a move that had to make sense for you, for your development as a player. And it had to make sense for Exeter City as well. There's no point getting someone in just for the sake of it who, who won't be getting minutes. It, clearly, it was the right signing for both parties. You're contributing so much to the team. You're getting tons of minutes as well. How did you weigh up other offers, other options, and decide that this was the right thing for you as a player? Um, I think, it, obviously, like I said before, it's it's home to me. This is where my family live and everything. So I think making sure that I was comfortable in an environment where sometimes it can get hard. I think first loans are normally quite tough. People can move away from where they're comfortable and struggle a lot. And I think I was lucky enough to come to a club where they were going to allow me to get game time. And not only that, but develop me as a player. Um, obviously, you've seen the people that have come through Exeter um, and the academy and just, just the way the club is and the way the club's handles, I thought it's probably the best place for me to come, like I said, for my first loan. Sometimes mm. they could be good, sometimes they can be not so good. But I think, yeah, I think coming down here was, was, was for my development. But like I said, there's obviously other bits to it that's made it extra special. It's not been easy for you either. You know, on paper, you're joining a team that had particularly an attacking unit that we spoke about every week on the pod as being perfectly in sync with each other from promotion last season in League Two. Your Sam Nombe, Giovanni Brown, Matt Jay, of course, such a key figure at the club. It wasn't a guarantee that you're going to just get straight in there and play a game. So what was that like to start with? Yeah, I think obviously that was the discussion I had with the manager when when I first had the phone call. Um, no managers can guarantee a player game time. And it was mainly for me to come down and do my best in training and contribute to goals and assists during the game and keep my place in the team. Mm. Uh, and what's it feel like scoring goals for Exeter City, wearing the number nine shirt in front of the Adam Stansfield stand? Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's a feeling that I probably won't feel again, especially my first goal at home against Fleetwood. Um Everybody's saying that it went in front of the big bank, um, but it was still it was still special to me, and it still meant a lot. I think, and my first goal for Exeter was away at Barnsley, and we got a two 0 result there. Um, so that was also quite special as well. I was at the Valley when you spanked one in from outside the box as well. Yeah. You've been showing such an all round part to your game, Jay. It's not just goals, but four assists as well. Lovely ball through to Giovanni on the weekend. Lovely ball through to Sam Nombe uh, a couple of weeks back uh, on Sky against Argyle. Is that always been a part of your game? Do you see yourself as a complete striker in terms of your role and what you can bring to the team? Um, I think it's part of the game that I've wanted to add it since since I was a scholar. Really, I always knew I had an eye for goal because um, obviously I work on it every day in training, the scoring part. But I think as a striker, people see strikers as goal scorers um, and I'd probably class myself in between a striker and a number 10 but I play in both positions so I think I can contribute if I'm playing as a 10 with my assists or if I'm up front with my goals it's something I've been working on a lot recently not just scoring but the assist as well I think getting a 
building a, a connection with Giovanni and Sam up front, and I think it's been working well for the team. I mean, they, they seem like great players to play with. You've got pure silkiness of Giovanni Brown and the vision that he has. You know he's going to pick you out. And Nombe with that speed, you, you, can, you know you can just put the ball in behind and more often than not, he's going to get on the end of it. Uh, you mentioned the, the, your role being between nine and, and a ten. People talk about Harry Kane's role being a kind of nine and a half. I'm really into my football tactics on, on that side of things. Are you like a football nerd outside of just playing or do you prefer to spend your time outside of the game focusing on other things? No, I come home and first thing I want to put on is football. I think obviously my aim is to play in the Premier League. So like on a Saturday after a game, it's always Super Sunday on, isn't there, on a mm-hmm. Sunday. So I always, I always like watching football and I analyse my game quite a lot for other people's as well. Just because obviously I'm still I'm still learning and still got a lot a lot to prove. Your parent club Fulham going very well in the Premier League. A really impressive style of play as well as how they're they're picking up points in the Premier League. It must be really exciting to watch them, albeit a bit weird from afar. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. Obviously, they're doing really well at the moment, um, and it just shows uh, what a club Fulham are. I think, obviously, Marco coming in last season and us doing really well in the Championship. Um, But just being around that environment, I've learnt so much over the last couple of years with, obviously, a change in manager with a lot of the big players that that we have there. Um, And I've learnt a lot from them recently. Obviously, wish them all the best for the season, but hopefully we can stay up in the Prem this year. Looking good on that front. Uh, Jay, just lastly, what's it been like for your family over the last two months, you're an extra kid, you're a Devon kid, your family's still down there. It, but you've been at Fulham for the last few years, so you've been sort of removed from the situation. Being back in amongst it, in, in with your family, in, in such a an incredible time, but no doubt quite an emotional time for you all as well. Yeah, it's been, it's been strange, obviously. Once you move out of home at such a young age, I think it's always hard to go back to. Obviously, you get your own, you build your own things that you like doing by yourself and... Mm with your friends and that so having still the freedom but having your family around again is obviously nice but it was quite hard to get used to but I think the last couple of weeks I've been enjoying it a lot more on the pitch and things um and enjoying my time back here I think the first couple of weeks I found it hard not just at home but on the pitch I think just adapting back down here and like people people knowing me and people I went to school with like bumping into them it was quite it was quite weird it's quite a weird feeling but I think I've got used to it now and like, like I said I'm all I'm concentrating on is what's happening on the pitch there was a, a lot of media interest when you signed and and it's absolutely understandable that that would be unusual to experience new to experience and, and difficult to handle in in some respects as well so it's really impressive that you've adapted so well thank you so much for for chatting to us we are all honestly cheering for you rooting for you when we first spoke uh, about you signing with Exeter City on the podcast a few weeks ago I shared with our listeners that my father passed away as well when I was uh, young a very similar age to you uh, when your dad passed away and and for me as a football obsessive um, the idea of of being able to follow in in your dad's footsteps is is just the most incredible thing and uh, it's been really nice even as an outsider not knowing you following the story following you and, and celebrating all of your goals and, and now chatting to you on the pod as well so thanks so much for your time mate and good luck with everything thank you cheers
Okay, how about an Express Championship weekend roundup starting now and starting at the very top? Burnley 3, Blackburn Rovers 0. On Sunday, Burnley top of the table heading into the break for the World Cup. This was the first East Lanx derby for some years, a land classico that wasn't a classico in the first half, was it? Kaminsky with a few sharp saves, but uh, otherwise it was fairly quiet, but burst into life in the second half and turned into derby domination, you have to say, for Burnley. For them, it was all about Zaruri, wasn't it? And his Wicked cross straight onto the head of Ashley Barnes, six yards out for Barnes's first league goal in open play for over a year. Barnes with an iconic goal and I guess an iconic celebration in that it started with his momentum from the header taking him straight into Kaminsky and basically, I think the right word is boshing Kaminsky into his own net before peeling away to celebrate. Uh, Then another, not long after, it was Zaruri who finished after Barnes had a shot saved. Barnes wasn't done, though. Uh, Made it 3-0 after brilliant play down the right side from Teller and from Josh Brownhill. Uh, A fantastic afternoon for Burnley. Uh, Much needed, in a way, after losing to Sheffield United last weekend. They go into the break, top of the table, and looking, you'd think the most likely champions at this point, but there'll be plenty looking to take them all the way. As for Blackburn, well, JDT, Thomason criticised for his tactics and his team selection here. With the benefit of hindsight, a 3-0 defeat was always going to be an issue for fans, and and you can understand why. I, I sort of see why you'd want to go to Burnley with confidence. They've won so many games recently, and to try and play the way that you normally do to try and impose yourself on Burnley because if you get it right, you can make a real statement. But in hindsight, it looks naive. You know, I I understand trying to invite Burnley onto you in order to then play it direct into Gallagher, in space to Brereton, who's very effective on the break. But of course, the risk that you take is giving the ball away in dangerous areas. And that's exactly what happened in the second half as they got picked off after mistakes building from the back. Uh, But also, I want to defend Thomason a little. This is going to be annoying to hear for Rovers fans, no doubt. But Burnley are a really, really good team and they have some brilliant players for this level, particularly in attacking areas. They play very attacking football. They press very high up. They're in great shape. They're they're the best team in the league. And it's hard to play against a team like that. Thomason picked an approach which didn't work. But I dare say that sitting in a low block and defending their box for their lives and inviting wave after wave of, of Burnley possession and pressure would have likely also ended in defeat. And if they'd lost 3-0 playing that way, well, I imagine the fans would be sitting there and saying, why don't we go for it a bit more? You know, we're a good team. We've won 12 games this season. Why didn't we try a bit harder? So I I feel a bit for Thomason. They've lost a game. It was a poor performance. I don't think you need to go too much further in your criticism personally. Cardiff lost 1-0 to Sheffield United, who head into the break second in the table, bouncing back from a midweek defeat at home to Rotherham. Cardiff if anything, had the better of the first half without anything 
particularly meaningful being created. But in the second, Sheffield United did what top teams do. They came out with a bit more focus, I think, uh, got ahead through George Bulldog, who's having a brilliant month or so, having a real impact on games going forward, uh, as well as defensively. James McAtee coming off the bench and getting a lot of credit for what Blades fans are saying was something of a, a match-winning performance off the bench, which is notable for him uh, and very valuable for him after a, a difficult start to his loan spell. On Friday night, Sunderland beat Birmingham City and the match winner was Ahmad Diallo on loan from Manchester United. We've been waiting to see this sort of performance from him and he turned it on in front of the cameras under the lights. Uh, firstly, great assist for Sims, quick feet in a tight area and then slipping it to Sims in space to fire home. And then the second goal was all pure quality. Uh, Diallo's goal, basically the inverted winger's dream, receiving the ball on the right side, uh, cutting inside, feinting to go outside, putting the defender off balance, cutting in, curling a brilliant shot in off the far post. Uh, Djukovic did get one back, uh, that goal meaning that he has scored in 11 separate championship seasons, which is a brilliant record for a man that we admire very much for what he's done at this level. I think maybe just one game too far for Birmingham, whose schedule in the last, last two weeks has been pretty brutal. It does mean Sunderland have won five of their 11 away games this season, which is a very impressive return, but only two wins at home. So clear things for Mowbray to focus on post-World Cup. They start with two home games after the break. Uh, and if they come out hot, uh, with Ross Stewart likely returning... You know, they might feel like a side that could challenge the top 10, the top six. It's It feels like they're in the balance at the moment. I don't really know what to expect from this point out from Sunderland. It, it is a young squad. It's a relatively new squad. And, and I guess I probably think it might be a year too early for them and maybe for Mowbray as he only arrived once the season was underway. But we shall see. Uh, at their best, they are exciting to watch. You can certainly say the same for Middlesbrough. A 2-1 win at Norwich City from behind with a late, late winner. It basically couldn't be a more perfect away day for the Borough fans. Michael Carrick's Palmo Army. Um, this is a statement win that, that leaves Borough and their fans heading into the breaks sort or of wishing that it didn't exist, wishing that they could keep going because they're looking very slick, very confident at the moment uh, and very composed. I think that's probably the thing that's most noticeable for me. Uh, Carrick is exuding a kind of calmness and a composure that seems to have been projected onto his team and is suiting them a lot better than what we spoke about when Wilder was leaving and just this like franticness in which he'd kind of led them for a few months that, that was again kind of coming across in their performances the goals came from World Cup bound championship stars first for Norwich the American Josh Sargent put them ahead with a classic Josh Sargent goal and then Riley McGree scored a jaw-dropping scissor kick uh, perfectly into the top corner. An incredible goal, actually in a weekend that was full of them across the whole EFL. Some absolutely marvellous goals. And then a winner right at the end from England's Matt Crook. So I think would be a really good option for Gareth Southgate off the bench in Qatar. Uh, brilliantly set up by Chuba Akpom. I think I was probably guilty of thinking Akpom was becoming a bit of a tap-in merchant and I was respectful of that, but absolutely not. This was a sensational piece of play to get out of a tight spot uh, down by the touchline and then open up the defence uh, and cross low for Crooks to score. Absolutely excellent play from Akpom. More than just uh, a bagsman. Uh, as for Carrick, 10 points in five games for him. The, the one blip was a defeat against Preston in a scrappy game with two set-piece goals conceded and one scored themselves. Otherwise, they've been very good. Their underlying numbers are very impressive and it feels like they could be... Uh, bit of a promotion picture disruptor in the second half of the season we shall see and we shall find out but I, I've got to mention Hayden Hackney the 20 year old centre midfielder 
uh, on loan at Scunthorpe last season, where he played pretty well in a team that lost almost every single game. He was thrown in to start for Borough by Perkovic, uh, the interim manager after Wilder was sacked, and he's not looked back since. Ten starts alongside Johnny Howson, and wow, he looks so smooth and, and so confident. There's a compilation from this game kicking around on Twitter in which Hackney just looks really confident gliding across the pitch, firing off quick, accurate passes and getting stuck in when needed as well. This is against the Norwich side playing a diamond formation, so a congested midfield area. But Hackney looked absolutely at home. Welcome to the radar in a very big way, Hayden Hackney. Coventry beat QPR 2-0. Giok got them up and running. As you'd expect, a bizarre goal, really. A ricochet off O'Hare, an air shot from Allen, I think, and then a great take from Jokeresh. Uh, and the second was him again. Harmer to O'Hare to Giok, a lovely goal. Good technical passing football, playing with their heads up and, and good movement off the ball. It's Coventry looking back to their best, and it's very, very exciting. Mark Robbins is Cov with four wins in a row. They've picked up the joint most points in the league in the last 10 weeks, um, having played a game more, admittedly, than Burnley in that time. But another team heading into the break, full of confidence and full of points. West Brom 2, Stoke 0. Here's another one. Three wins in a row under Carlos Corboran now. It was a familiar combination. John Swift crossing for Kyle Bartley to head them in front. And the second goal, one of the aforementioned worldies from the weekend. Brandon Thomas Asante with an incredible Overhead kick, looping over the goalkeeper. Um, what a positive feeling that there is amongst West Brom, the team and their fans at the moment. Corboran has come in, instantly got them organised and it turns out with organisation comes clean sheets, comes narrow wins, comes confidence. You can see it coursing through the whole team. and That was not what they were feeling for the rest of the season before Corboran came in. So a huge impact from him. What else? Hull won Reading 2. These two teams traded goals from corners. It was Jacob Greaves first heading Hull in front, then Mate bundling home for Reading. And then right at the end, in injury time, a deep free kick from Tom Ince, a magnificent leap from Andy Carroll, a Longman leg stuck out and diverting the ball into his own goal. Ryan Longman, OG, Reading win and head into the break in 12th position. Their second win in 10 games are much needed. Preston 2, Millwall 4 is a hilarious scoreline because if you looked at the odds pre-game, this has had one of the lowest goal expectancies I think I've ever seen before, uh, and yet it was 2 all at half-time. Big Z and Fleming, the main name here. The Bermondsey Burkamp with a hat-trick. What a piece of recruitment that was. Because... We know that teams knew about Fleming because he was a bit of a data outlier. He would have been on the radar of any team, really, that was casting their net outside of the UK and looking for uh, players in divisions that they can sign from post-Brexit. Fleming would have been on a lot of radars, but only Millwall were A, brave enough, and B, had enough cash this summer. Millwall, despite not being a very rich championship team in general... Uh, have been run prudently enough that they were able to spend some money this summer where so many teams didn't seem able to. Uh, and they laid down the fee required and are clearly not regretting it. Life post Jed Wallace has been made a lot easier by this absolute shot monster who has eight goals in, in 14 starts. Big Zian Fleming, the match winner for Millwall. Now Wigan 2, Blackpool 1 was a big one down at the bottom uh, and Blackpool had the lead with 10 men. Ekpiteta sent off early on for a just sort of unconfident, clumsy defending, very out of character 
based on his performances last season, but just shows the lack of confidence in this Blackpool team, particularly defensively at the moment. Uh, then a brilliant Medine goal, basically out of nothing, got them ahead. Uh, from that point, they barely had another chance and Wigan came back. McLean with an Olympic goal, followed by a thumping Curtis Tilt header from a direct cross. Uh, this was a, an interesting game for Wigan, the first without Liam Richardson in the dugout. And I think some quite difficult feelings for the fans there because of what Richardson has done over the last two years, first in, in saving them from League One relegation, really against the odds, given the squad that he started that season with following their administration and then in taking them up winning league one last season he's gone he's gone uh, sacked last week which raised a few questions such as why would you give a manager a new three-year contract and then sack him two weeks later it doesn't project the image of an ownership group that know exactly what they're doing and yet Wigan have been in very poor form and they are particularly before the weekend feeling very threatened with relegation, which may uh, be something of a disaster in the eyes of the owners. So I asked a Wigan fan on NTT20 squad, Richard Pike, to kind of sift through it all and put down his thoughts for me. He said when he heard the news about Richardson no longer being Wigan manager, he was very, very shocked. Got the impression that Richardson was probably under pressure for the first time as Wigan manager but I didn't believe that it was at a stage where a coaching change was just around the corner. I think on Richardson's future, the fans were divided into four camps. Support the manager at all costs. Support the manager, but with some slight doubts creeping in. Undecided or 50-50 and make a change now. Uh, Richard saying he was in the support the manager, but some slight doubts creeping in camp. Looking at why the board made the decision, which uh, in my eyes, in the eyes of many fans, says Richard is a huge gamble. I think you can point to a few factors. Before Saturday's win, which is only the second home win of the season, it was one win in 10 league games for Wigan, eight of these being defeats. Uh, and given this is a championship where we're just before the halfway point and 23 points is the tally, uh, keeping aside out the relegation zone. So it, it projects to be a campaign where it's likely 50 points or more needed for championship survival. That probably puts even more pressure on the managers of clubs in, let's say, the bottom six in the league. Richard says that the upcoming four weeks sees the Championship break for the World Cup, so a new manager can come in and have four weeks away from a relentless schedule to work on tactics, integrating the new players from the summer, some of whom have struggled to find game time. Uh, and maybe there was just a, a sense of, of wanting a reaction, even in the shortest of terms, for that massive game at home to Blackpool of course the Blackpool early red means that it was made a lot easier from Wigan but did they get a reaction from the team possibly they looked a bit better than they did in the previous weeks and they got a very very valuable win so um, thank you to Richard Pike for his thoughts really really helpful to, to sift through what is quite a, a head-scratching decision in some ways um, a huge win either way for Wigan uh, and a managerial search underway Sean Maloney is favourite as we record that would be Interesting if Maloney was uh, tempted back to the DW. Uh, elsewhere, the draws, Luton 1, Rotherham 1, uh, with Nathan Jones having left for Southampton. Magic Mick Harford was back in the interim role. Of course, took them to promotion from League One a few years ago after Jones had left the first time for Stoke. Uh, so he is no stranger to this sort of role, um, but not a great start. Jamie Lindsay scoring for Rotherham after less than a minute, uh, thanks to good work from Ogbene. But... Luke Berry scores goals. Last season, 709 minutes, six goals, 0.76 
per 90. This season, 205 minutes, an injury hit season, but he's already got two goals and grabbed the equaliser here. I think for Rotherham, disappointing to, to give away the lead. They certainly deserve this World Cup rest. What a tough few fixtures for them uh, it's been. They've battled magnificently, you have to say, in the last uh, four fixtures against Burnley, Norwich, uh, against Sheffield United and then Luton away. I think four points from those four games is objectively a good return. And yet the fans feel that they probably deserved more and were on the wrong end of some some bad luck and some poor decisions. So uh, I guess when you mix that all together, you get a sense that Matt Taylor is putting his own stamp on things. And I think projecting forward uh, a pretty positive feeling from Rotherham fans, which is, is good to see after their manager walked out on them uh, not too long ago. And then Huddersfield nil, Swansea nil, and Bristol City nil, Watford nil. Uh, that was a match that happened astride the River Avon. Right. When you're looking for people to fill in for the great George Ellick, you get a few things that just land in your lap. And that came in the form of friend of the pod, NTT20 squad legend, Andy Watson, joining us on the pod once more. Hi, Ali. Absolutely thrilled to be here. I know what you're talking about, and it's going to be an interesting discussion. Well, I hope it is anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You have co-authored a report for Analytics FC on Brexit ball. Essentially, the impact of Brexit on the transfer market would be a pretty simple description of it. And I thought that would be quite an interesting thing to hear about because it strikes me that in the lead up to Brexit becoming a thing, there was a lot of talk within football of, well, it's going to have a big impact on the transfer market. And then we almost immediately switched to Brexit's having a big impact on the transfer market, but we never really discussed how or why. So that's what we're going to do with Andy today. Then I realized Andy's the most knowledgeable Blackburn Rovers fan that I know, and they are the team that we are most confused about right now. We don't need to talk about the game because I know you're hurting. Can you begin to explain Blackburn's bizarre accumulation of points this season, by which I mean the much-discussed 12 wins, nine defeats, no equalisers, either scored or conceded, the first goal being the only one that really matters? In short, no. Um, I don't think anybody can explain it because it's such an anomaly. We saw Preston, obviously, doing their own anomalous stuff at the early part of the season, and that's kind of correcting itself as we go. I think the numbers are becoming, if you look across the whole season, uh, more normal within the spectrum than you would expect. Um, and I think we'll see that with Blackburn as well. As we get, obviously, the four to six games, you'll see that the stats become a little bit more straightforward. But there are little things that you can pick up on when you're watching Blackburn that probably indicate that we are one of those sides that where the first goal really does matter. And that's what you're talking about there with no, no equalisers in any Blackburn Rovers League game, although there was, of course, against West Ham in the Cup recently. So it can happen. Um, it's just... It doesn't happen in the league. And I think, you know, you you mentioned we don't want to talk about Sunday. I think we kind of have to do to encapsulate what we're seeing Mm. in that. In in, in a few situations, especially away from Ewood Park, Blackburn are really struggling to make much of an impact in the opposition's half. And I think Burnley demonstrated how to do that against Blackburn really well on Sunday. They they pressed us deep. They pressed us all over the pitch. And we were unable to 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 break that really. Mm. Um, the number of touches that we got in Burnley's penalty box was very low. 
Uh, only one shot, of course, in the whole 90 minutes, 90 plus minutes. So um, he did. anyone watching that game will be able to see the difference between Burnley and Blackburn. And, and unfortunately, even though that was very, it's very small in terms of points, it was two points going into the into that game. Mm. Um, in terms of the performance metrics, especially, like I say, away from home for Blackburn, it's different at home. Um, but yeah, you can certainly see watching that game why we're struggling to get back into games, especially after conceding the first goal. What have been your thoughts on on Thomason so far as Rovers manager? You can't help but be impressed with what you know the overall vision is for the club. Um, the fact that we've been getting positive results um, has obviously helped give them a little bit more time um, within the supporters' eyes as well. Sunday maybe hurt that a little bit just with the way that the, the match went. But any any Blackburn Rovers fan who you know looking back in July. Even June, when the when Greg Broughton was appointed, when Yondale Thomason was appointed, and wondering how it was going to go, to be third going into the World Cup break um, is beyond probably anybody's expectations of what what we would be at, and probably against Greg and, and Yondale's expectations as well. Mm. Um, performances we know have got got to improve, um, but in terms of where we are, it's given us some time to be able to do that improvement. Um, during the course of the season. It's still a very young squad, a young team. Um, and I think what everyone's talking about in, in terms of the club is building a structure and building mm. in behind. And that's what Blackburn fans can be very positive about is that, yes, the, we're getting some good results and actually the points that are there on the board. And we certainly don't have to be in trouble of like relegation and um, looking at how things are going. Mm. So it does give us that time to be able to get that structure in behind and allow the owners to put that investment in behind and, and build that infrastructure so that we are consistently looking at playoffs promotion and then one of these times we will either get lucky or we'll be exceptional in performance or we will be exceptional in results and get back into the Premier League. Well let's get down to some serious discussions uh, around Brexit baller and this report that you've co-authored for Analytics FC. First and foremost it's a comprehensive look at the effects of GBE regulations on the British transfer market. A GBE is a governing body endorsement, which is required to sign a player from overseas. So we've got a few technical terms out the way first. From a personal perspective, why did you decide and how did you become an expert in Brexit and its impact on the transfer market? I suppose, you know, initially I have quite a a lot of interest in socioeconomic um, things that go on in, in, in life, not just in football. And I like to dig into, I mean, a lot of my stuff is about research and often on the pitch, but also off the pitch and the structures of clubs and the structures of federations and and how things come to be good or not so good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was a topic that obviously I had some passion about in terms of its politics, but more importantly for me, I like to mix things in with sport where possible. And with football being my number one sport, it seems to be something that piqued my interest. And after we'd had two or three transfer windows of these Brexit regulations, I thought, well, actually, is this actually having an impact? And what impact is it having? And what can we find out about it? So I started writing initially a series of four articles for Analytics FC. Um, John McKenzie thought it would be a good idea. So if John thinks it's a good idea, then um, that that encouraged me that it actually was rather than just me being a bit boring uh, Hmm. in my old (laughs) age. So we we went with that and um, I started investigating what the regulations actually were because 
I still don't think many people actually know what what they look like and 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 uh, what the points um, accumulation needs to be for players to come over here. So that was the starting point. And then how have clubs used them and how should clubs be using the markets available to them um, to to make the best of it? Mm. I bet you there were there were some people that thought it'll be fine. Like it'll just, it, football won't be that badly impacted. We'll still be able to sign the players that we want to sign. It's not really been the case. There are certain leagues which used to be quite fertile ground even for EFL clubs championship clubs in particular that are now basically what I'm calling no buy zones yeah we will concentrate obviously on the EFL because that's what we like to do here but correct just to touch on the overall market that you said there there's been a massive reduction we estimated to be around 90 percent somewhere between between 85 to 92 percent was what we kind of estimated a reduction of of what exactly a reduction of the number of players that would be available to play in this country 90%. I mean, a lot, like, you know, a, a vast majority of that number is made up of players that would never be bought <laughs> by English clubs. Like, we're talking about, you know, Norwegian third tier players. And hmm. um, so well, let's put it this way. Obviously, we've, the UK did, made the decision to leave the European Union, and that also cost them the freedom of movement that came with that. So the vast majority of the market that has been lost is that European chunk so that was estimated at fifty-five thousand professional players by fifa in 2019 so if we take we're taking that as kind of all of those players if they wanted to if they were in demand by someone in in the uk they could come over here and, and be able to play and work work for that club obviously that has gone and has been replaced by a points tariff that was used to be applicable some version of it applicable to the rest of the world, right? So it was always difficult for clubs to bring in players from South America, for instance, or from Australia or from, you know, anywhere else outside mm. the EU. They had to pass a certain test um, to be able to get in. So that test has been adapted and made into the, this governing body uh, endorsement that you mentioned earlier, where a player has to be able to pass um, 15 point the 15 point mark and you get that through, through various different ways um but it, it results in the fact that as you say the market is now mass- massively reduced to around about 10 leagues hmm. um, that you can realistically buy from and and they're in bandings so there's band one band two and band three when you get outside of band three um you can't really like especially efl clubs because then you're relying on players that have got points from um, European competition or <clears throat> South American continental competition, and obviously you can't. You're often not attracting that kind of caliber mm. of player in the EFL. A lot of the leagues that are still available are the top leagues in European countries. Some of those leagues are broadly strong enough that the, even the Championship struggles to affect them outside, perhaps, of the parachute payment heavy teams. Um, a lot of the leagues that that we've lost, so to speak are the second tiers of European leagues, some of which, particularly off the top of my head, Germany and France, um, and, and then leagues in Scandinavia, which which feel, you know, complete no-buy zones now. Those were actually like really good pools for creative recruitment to the championship in particular. Yeah, you're absolutely spot, spot on. Yeah, all Central European leagues as well. So I think we were starting to see a little bit more like Austrian shopping, uh, Czech Republic, Poland, um, all these sorts of leagues, Serbia, Greece, are all in band four. Um, Scandinavia are in band four, band five. So really all we're talking about now is obviously your big big five leagues, 
which you know you can still get some young players, some ones that haven't quite made it in those in those leagues, um, possibly being able to be bought by championship clubs, and we've seen a little bit of that. Um, what we've seen an increase of, and this is one of the findings in the report, is that Bantu leagues have become big shopping areas for the championship. Um, by Bantu, I mean Portugal, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Turkey. Mm-hmm. So if we think, obviously, it might be anomalous because of what's happened in these clubs, but Burnley obviously have spent a lot of money in Belgium. Probably no coincidence that Vincent, Vincent Company is their manager. And then we saw Anas Sarawi, um, tearing Blackburn a new one um, at the weekend so that's obviously working out quite well for them at the moment mm. um, on the on the flip side we've got Hull City who spent a lot of money in Turkey um, obviously they've got a Turkish owner and I don't know whether he just felt like they knew the players there or wanted to support that market but it's obviously not working out as well for them in terms of their league position and we'll see long term how that goes but they were still able to buy players from those markets, whereas a lot of championship clubs who, like you mentioned briefly there, don't have the parachute payments, mm. are very restricted. And they're also very restricted in the amount of money that they are spending. In the piece or in the report, you know, the, there's a very stark graph, which is just looking at transfer spend in general in the championship. It has dropped monumentally over the last five years. From, from the summer of 2017, where... Clubs without parachute payments were regularly spending eight, nine, ten million pounds, mostly on strikers, um, mostly on strikers that, that probably didn't do what they wanted them to do for them. It is now dropped hugely to this summer being at a real, well, a modern all-time low. Anyway, I guess what's presumably quite difficult is is how much you put that down to Brexit and its impact on the transfer market and on freedom of movement and pools of players available to be recruited covid where teams were pretty distressed financially for a, for a number of reasons and then i do think ffp has played a role here you know at the start of the pod the teams that were spending a lot of money on these players are generally the teams that didn't get promoted and have encountered difficulties with ffp since then such as sheffield wednesday derby county or teams that got promoted like Aston Villa, I guess, or even Borough before they went up. So how do you weigh all those things together and try and find out the reasons for, for such a drop in spending? I'll just start with a question to you. Like You've obviously been doing the podcast for kind of that amount of time that was covered in the graph in the document. Anecdote, like, out of your head, does that did you really register that there was that much difference? Well, I guess because, because since... COVID was 2020, right? So we're now late 2022. So we've had three summer windows since mm. since the virus. And like it, it, it had such an effect immediately that it was quite tempting to put everything down to that. Um, and I'm sure that probably is and was the biggest factor. I think, I think teams are still sort of tentatively coming out of their cage, so to speak. What I would say is I'm, I'm pretty sure in those early years, I was occasionally saying, by the way, these teams who are spending eight, nine, ten million pounds on one player, they really need to either get promoted in the next two or three years or sell some players for the equivalent amount of money or they are going to get in big trouble. So I guess it's not that surprising that the pool of clubs that were able to do that at that time have either got promoted and sort of dodged the issue or experienced big issues. Now we just have a set of owners in the championship who broadly don't seem to 
be able to or willing to rack up tens of million pounds of losses per year for a, for a gamble at the, at the top of the Premier League. That's with a few exceptions. Yeah, and I, and I would agree with that. So that's what made me think that a lot of this that we saw is down to FFP. Um, yeah, COVID as well. But like I say, we've come out the back end of that now and we're still not really seeing that much change. Domestic, so this summer was the first time that foreign spending outstripped domestic spending in the championship, mm-hmm. which again comes back to what we were talking about in terms of Bantu spending from Burnley and Hull and a few others as well. So looking at the top 10 fees paid this summer by championship clubs, nine out of the top 10 transfers were by parachute payment clubs. And when you look back to the last season before Brexit, I think you saw Derby County in there, I think, was that the the Birmingham City that signed Ivan Sunjic as well. Mm. And um, yeah, Isaac and Benza was the, the highest transfer fee for, to Huddersfield. And that was 11.25 million off the top of my head. Wow. Um, these are fees that we just aren't seeing now. Mm. And, the, the pro- and the problem was that there was multiple. I, I think I remember Middlesbrough signing Martin Brathwaite and uh, Britta Sombolonga in the same mm. window for fees over 10 million. Um, and these are fees, like I said, we're, just, we're not seeing. We're not mm. seeing as many fee-paying transfers. And a little bit of it comes down to squad planning and things like that. And also the amount of money that players make in terms of wages now, a lot of them are being advised to wait till the end of their contracts to be able to get a better deal going forward. Mm. You've seen Ben Barrett and Diaz, obviously, at the moment, it's only got six months left on his contract at Blackburn. Um, but we've seen that all over. I think Jed Wallace as well was another example of someone who didn't move for big fees and wanted to probably stay loyal to his club, but obviously wanted to explore options at the end. And that's not to say that they'll move. It's just to say we'll see what kind of comes in. So we're seeing that shift as well. All of these things are combining to what we're seeing in the Championship at the moment. But Brexit does play a part. And the fact that we, we are talking about a domestic market, which has remained broadly the same in terms of the number of players that you can buy, um, but then taking away all of that European Union and bringing in, in its place, basically Brazil, Argentina and Mexico and Russia, which, you know, that's a whole different story, which we mm. do not have time for in this podcast. Mm. Um, but, you know, we've only really seen Norwich go, go down that South American route with, you know, Gabriel Sara. And uh, Marcelino Nunez, and they're having an impact. I think you know we've talked, you've talked on this podcast about each of one of those like independently, and I think until we see those types of transfers paying off for the clubs that are, that are trying them, then we will continue to see that market not being used as as much as it really could be or should be. Mm. So, is there any evidence to suggest that these stricter regulations? And the smaller pools of recruitment from from uh, from Europe, in particular, has led to more appearances and more minutes for British players in the Championship, uh, League One, League Two. If you have that data, but I know f- for the purpose of this, we mostly looked at the Championship. Well, the only reason that Championship takes more precedence in terms of the findings is because League One and League Two, to an extent, have always been largely domestic based in terms of the movement of players. Um, there is a little bit of League One in the document where you can see that there are fewer, I don't want to describe them as journeymen, but some players would come into League One. Um, if you go back five seasons, I think there were 16 foreign imports into League One. Um, a lot of them are not players that I've even heard of. Mm. Um, so it shows the lack of impact that they had, but obviously some would come in and have an impact. But we're, we're not seeing that at all anymore. 
And I, f- I do find that interesting because there are clubs in League One like Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday at the moment who have the budget and probably the recruitment teams to be able to research into, especially the bottom end of the Eredivisie or the bottom end of mm. the, the Belgian League and, and Turkey, and they can afford to pay those wages as well. So it is a little bit of a mystery to me as why that hasn't been more used in League One especially. Mm. But you can see that in general, 90% of those clubs won't be looking to, um, outside of the domestic market anyway. One of the big things that was mentioned at the time that the Brexit regulations came into force was that they wanted to be um, protective of the English game, um, the national team. And we've obviously were preparing for a World Cup in which a lot of that England squad have got EFL either came from the EFL or spent time in the EFL. So it's definitely very important for all of those parties to, well, maybe not the Premier League, but the EFL and the FA to look after that. And what we've seen in terms of measuring the the minutes is that in the championship, the number of British players and English players specifically has gone up um, 22%. Um, since Mm pre-Brexit. However, that hasn't necessarily translated into the the minutes. So only a 9% increase um, from last season to the first pre-Brexit season, Um, which is obviously a good thing, but you start to then think about, well, what about the quality of those minutes? Mm. If we're not getting the quality of players coming into the league that we had before and we're playing in a lesser competition, then is it as valuable to have more minutes at a lower level? So there's always a balance to be struck there. And I think I would err on the side of you probably need quality minutes for those players. Um, However, it's only a very small sample size at the moment. So Mm. we can't say there's a definite trend. Um, It'll be interesting to see when the season finishes and then compare that to what we've seen previously and see if Mm. it is increasing or or whether it just remains at at around about a 9% increase. Could a current non-parachute payment laden championship team do a, a Brentford broadly in terms of recruitment from overseas you know they signed players from Ligue 2 very successfully uh, the Zweite Bundesliga the Scandinavian leagues as well um, how realistic is that for a, a similar sized team in the championship now? It's a lot more difficult um, if you're going to put it in a, in a short way recently the regulations did change a little bit to allow um, under 21 players to be able to go directly to an exceptions panel rather mm-hmm. than having to fulfill the 15 point criteria. But the problem with the exceptions panel in England um, is that it's very strict still. So you've got to provide some really good evidence that the player that you're signing is going to make a big impact within your club and therefore within the English game. So Jewison and Bennett is an example of that for Sunderland, who they okay. obviously must have presented a good case. And so we'll, we'll see. He's obviously after the World Cup as well. Um, we will see what impact he has in the future. The early signs are that he's got a lot of talent and he's already played some championship minutes. So um, that's the kind of calibre I think that you need to be looking at to be able to bring those kind of unknown players in. Mm. Um, what I will say, though, is that smart recruitment teams will always perform well um, in their processes. So if you've got really good processes and very good scouts and um, a good way of identifying talent, then... You and you're agile and you can act quickly in the market, any changes that might occur in the regulations, any players that might suddenly become available um, through the points or or otherwise, you will always end up, hopefully, above, mm. above the pile. I don't think there's the same kind of separation that as there was when Brentford were doing it. Everyone's a little bit tighter now. Everyone's got access to certain data. Everyone's got access to, you know, by scout or, or something similar with with that universality. So it's it's about being able to make those processes as smart as possible. 
seems to me a shame that some of the the players that we've enjoyed watching and covering so much over the last or well, pre-Brexit would not now be able to be signed by um, mm. championship clubs, League One, League Two clubs. Um, but also it's interesting to, to hear about those changes, hear about the impact and the knock-on effect of it. So just a massive thank you, Andy, for, for bringing your expertise, for providing us the time and for, for chatting us through Brexit ball. Thanks very much, mate. Thank you. Thanks for your time. The sort of topic that we don't cover very well, very often, on the Monday pod because we get so caught up in weekend review excitement. So I'm super grateful for Andy for, for lending us his time. You can follow Andy on Twitter at Andy Watson Sport. I would absolutely recommend doing so. He is a legend of the NTT20 squad. So again, if you'd like to be chatting football and other things with people like Andy, then join the NTT20 squad. You can sign up with a two-week free trial so you can check it out before you pay a monthly fee. Uh, you can find the link to do that in the description. And if you'd like to read the report, Brexit Ball co-authored by Andy Watson. Head to Analytics FC's website. You will find it on there. What should we do next? I'm thinking a League One Express weekend roundup. It was definitely the league for entertainment this weekend. Uh, We spoke to Jay Stansfield at the top of the show, Exeter City's front man who set up their magnificent winning goal, a come-from-behind victory against Peterborough United, a 3-2 win for Exeter. Uh, At the top of the table, it was a good week for Sheffield Wednesday. They beat Accrington 1-0. Really enjoyed the winning goal here. It was Bannon fizzing it onto the chest of big Michael Smith uh, and first time cushioning it for Alex Mighton to volley home through Toby Savin's hands. Mighton, of course, a youngster at Nottingham Forest who's always been very, very highly rated, um, got some league minutes at Forest over the last few years but never quite broke through and certainly not in the manner of Brennan Johnson who kind of leapt above Mighton in the pecking order and has obviously kicked on to be a Premier League starter now for the most part. Uh, Mighton having to drop down to League One to, to sort of get some confidence and I guess to prove that he can do it consistently at this level but he's been struggling a little bit to find his spot in this team. So scoring the winner in a start here will have done him... No harm whatsoever. For Aki, it's only one point in their last seven games. Very troubling form. They're just outside the bottom four. Uh, Generally at this stage, they've been well clear of that in the last few years. So it's a big battle on their hands. It's a new battle, really, you'd say, um, for Accrington, for John Coleman. As for Wednesday, I think we said a few weeks ago that they just needed to not focus on Ipswich and Argyle's results and point tallies because it clouds your own judgment of your own team and it's not really that helpful at this stage of the season just focus on your own performances on your own results which are objectively excellent there will be days and there have been days obviously where Wednesday have dropped points Argyle in particular and Ipswich have won games and it, and it feels terrible it makes your result feel worse but then you get these days on the flip side where you win and they don't uh, Wednesday still in cracking shape I would say at Plymouth drew one all at Lincoln and both teams probably could have won this game I mean Mike Cooper in the Argyle net how many points has he won them alone this season with big saves Uh, uh, more big saves from Cooper here as for Lincoln they just love playing the teams above them They've drawn against Sheffield Wednesday, Portsmouth and now Argyle when the opposition have been favoured. And they've even beaten Ipswich and Barnsley and Derby, among others as well. It's the teams beneath them that they haven't got a great record against, albeit they've mostly played top half teams at this point. So an easier fixture list to come for Lincoln. They've got a bizarre home record at Sinsel Bank this season. Um, They're unbeaten. 
at Central Bank in eight games. And you might think that sounds excellent, but they've only won one of those eight games and they've drawn seven. Some of those have been battling draws against top teams and some of them have been underwhelming draws against teams near the bottom. So uh, an interesting one to keep an eye on. How long can Lincoln stay unbeaten at Central Bank? Ipswich drew one all with Cheltenham. A brilliant point for Cheltenham Town. Ipswich leaving frustrated. It's not been such a good week for a goalkeeper that, that seemed to be vying with Cooper for a top shot stopper. Christian Walton, who was questioned after the four all against Charlton. Uh, here he let a Ryan Broom shot straight through him, really. It, sh- it should have been saved by a goalkeeper of his quality. That was Cheltenham's equaliser at Portman Road after Wolfenden had put Ipswich ahead. It was Cheltenham's first shot of the game late on in the first half. Ipswich had had 12 shots before it. They had 17 shots after it. But we've kind of heard this story before. Uh, only Wolfenden actually finishing his chance. Three expected goals generated, but only four shots on target from the 29 total shows that their finishing is not good enough at the moment, Ipswich. Uh, they are still dominating games more so than anyone, but it doesn't mean a huge amount right now uh, when you're not finishing your chances in games that you should be winning. MK Dons won Derby 3, another excellent away day for the Derby fans. They're getting used to these under Paul Warren. And they came from behind. Louis Barry's breakaway goal uh, put MK ahead but spurred Derby into life. Uh, and it was it was good finishing here, really. Two set-piece goals. Uh, Connor Harahan curling one onto the head of Roberts. And then James Collins finishing as well from a set-piece before the excellent Mendes Lang finished it off. Derby into the top six at Barnsley. Beat Shrewsbury 1-0. Now, the goal was scored by Adam Phillips. Uh, It was only his second start of the season, Phillips, and scored the winning goal here. And it was classic Phillips. He's a guy who, if he can nail down a spot as the most attacking midfielder in this 3-5-2, with two sitters, with two other attackers in front of him, I'm pretty confident that Phillips, in a good team, should provide enough goal contributions, goals and assists, that is, to, to, to ramp up Barnsley's attacking play, which hasn't always been electrifying, shall we say, this season. He's a high-volume guy. He takes a ton of shots, but he's a, a you know he's a decent shooter and he's a guy that tries things on the ball. He'll try the through balls. He'll try the creative passes. And I think that he could make a big difference if Duff can trust him in the team and give him a settled spot. For Shrewsbury Town... Yeah, this was a really sad day uh, in the main after the passing of, of Glyn Price. Uh, Glyn was a huge Shrewsbury fan. He was the founder of the Blue and Amber fanzine. We have followed BNA fanzine on social media for as long as I can remember. Since the start of the pod, Glyn was always my sort of go-to uh, to check the, the temperature, if you like, of, of Shrewsbury Town fans. He was a fantastic source for the fan base of content, of passion, of strong views. And he was so passionate about the club. He had a huge impact both in in fan matters and also in in raising money for charity as well. He did a lot of work on that front. So um, really sad to hear of his passing. We send all of our love to Glyn's family, the Shrewsbury Town family, uh, and anyone who knew and loved Glyn and admired his work and passion for Shrews. Forest Green lost 2-0 at home to Wickham. A very unhappy day at the new lawn as Forest Green hit the bottom of League One, continue to struggle at both ends. They they can't do enough to keep teams out and they're definitely not doing enough in possession of the ball to hurt teams and they just lack so much confidence right now. A wheeler smashed Wickham ahead. But how about Gareth McCleary's goal? 
uh, one of the five brilliant strikes from the weekend with the outside of his boot 20-25 yards out slowly curling it back in from outside the far post and the perfect camera angle as well just wouldn't have looked nearly as good if he'd scored it at the other end delectable goal for Gareth McCleary and a a good comfortable win for Wickham Wanderers how about Oxford 4 Port Vale nil. The first clean sheet in 16 in the league for Carl Robinson's Oxford. Only their second clean sheet of the season in total. Doubles for Matt Taylor, who really needed them. For Billy Bowden, who really needed them. Marcus Brown looking very sharp as well. Just a a good, strong performance, a a dominant home win. The sort that we expected from them pre-season against teams that we thought would be in League One's bottom half. Uh, Most importantly, a lovely performance to to welcome young Eva Ellick to the world. No doubt she's getting a taste for heavy Oxford United home wins. I was surprised to see Port Vale look so loose out of possession, particularly for the first goal where Oxford just passed it all the way through the thirds before scoring. Um, Regardless, an off day for them. Oxford and Carl Robinson seemingly working through the issues that they've had over the last few months. They got Forest Green and Accrington up next in the league. So if they can um, keep this performance level, they should start moving up the table to a certain extent. Then we had some entertaining draws in League One. Burton 3, Charlton 3. Just a fairly bonkers game this with some delightful goals. Charlton went 2-0 up. Two very cute finishes from Charlie Kirk. One with his left foot and one with his right foot. And then Burton came flying back, thumping finishes from the head of Oshelaja, the left foot of Hamer, the right foot of Adeboyejo, brilliant goals all in their own way, before Raksaki ran onto a cracking pass from Anike to lift it high over the keeper and equalise for Charlton. 3-3, Burton providing good entertainment for the, for the fans, for the neutral fans, certainly, yet again, 61 goals total in their 18 league games this season. Bristol Rovers 2, Fleetwood 2. This was a spicy one, wasn't it? Joseph Barton and Scott Brown meeting in the dugout for the first time, having done battle in the old firm derby once or twice back in the day. It was Barton against Fleetwood as well, his old club. Uh, He was sent to the stands with a few minutes left. Probably the most predictable thing that happened in the EFL all weekend. That that was with Rovers 2-1 up as well. It's not how it finished. Uh, They they were 2-1 up, a goal and an assist for Aaron Collins, Shock. But Fleetwood right back, Sean Rooney, the hero. Two goals, one that put them ahead early in the game and the other to equalise deep into stoppage time to snatch a point for Fleetwood. Morecambe won, Portsmouth won. Uh, Notable for a a nice bit of play from the youngster Adam Mayer, who's getting more and more minutes for Morecambe having burst onto the scene a few weeks ago. He seems to be having an impact as well. Seems to be a good quality attacking player. He set up Liam Shaw for Morecambe's opener. Colby Bishop, tapped in his ninth of the season for Portsmouth to equalise. And you might have assumed, looking at the scoreline here, that Portsmouth would have been the dominant side and that they would have um, you know, ended up not winning because of some poor finishing or something like that. Actually, Morecambe had a string of good chances here, particularly Jensen Weir and Dylan Connolly. Uh, it was them who were probably the more wasteful and probably had the better chances to win the game. So uh, an interesting one here, Danny Cowley showing some... I was going to say thinly veiled, but there was not even a thin veil. Some pretty clear frustration with some quite chippy comments, basically, about the injuries that they're experiencing, basically suggesting all is not well in his relationship with the medical department. Now, this doesn't seem ideal. 
uh, for any football club to have a manager and a medical department at odds with each other, if that is the case. He said something quite bizarre, like it's not always easy to be Portsmouth manager. Uh, so that's something that we'll keep an eye on. 1-1, it finished. And Cambridge nil, Bolton nil was a match that happened not far from the River Cam. <laughs> Right, a League Two Express weekend roundup through gritted teeth, really, because League Two is in our bad books. League Two is, is very much on the naughty step, so much so that we've got a National League segment this week because we just want to put a rocket up League Two's backside because 19 goals in 12 games is, is not good enough. In fact, League Two has been low on goals, low on attacking intent all season, the average goals per game in League 2 is 2.28, which is exceptionally low for, for any level, really. It's well below the 2.46 from last season. That might not sound like a lot, but a 0.18 goals per game difference is 100 goals over the course of a 46-game league season. So something's happening in League 2. I... Don't have all of the answers. What I will say is I'm going to start praising the managers that are playing with a modicum of attacking intent who are trying to coach and trying to get their teams to execute interesting attacking styles of play. That's what I think we're really, really lacking as teams have flooded their defence with back threes, flooded the midfield areas. Everything has become very, very congested. The league is heavily reliant on wide players and in the main wing backs or full backs to create chances via crosses. And that is not the case for every single team. But I strongly believe that just because this is the fourth tier rather than the second, rather than the third tier. And of course, the, the quality of player naturally, therefore, is lower. I don't believe that needs to mean fewer goals and less entertainment. That is not how football works. So uh, that's, yeah, me laying down the gauntlet. Please, League Two teams, can we have a bit more? Can we have a bit more fun? Uh, I certainly can't level that at Leighton Orient, who have been excellent this season under Richie Wellens and are really, really fun to watch, good to watch. They beat Harrogate 2-0. They are our league leaders. Bouncing back from a midweek defeat against Wimbledon, easing past this very poor Harrogate side. Now, if you'd asked me last week if there was anything Paul Smith couldn't do, the first thing I might have offered was, I can't see him scoring a header from a corner. Well, <laughs> not anymore. A flick header at the near post to put them 1-0 up. And then Smith was the one who scampered in behind, used his pace to draw a foul from the Harrogate keeper, uh, which Monker stuck away for 2-0. For nice and easy for Orient, just what they needed. As for Harrogate, six points from their last 14 in League Two. Six points from 14 games. Stevenage kept the pace with Orient with a 1-0 win against Hartlepool. Not at their best, Stevenage, it's fair to say. Have they slowed up a little bit in the last few weeks? I might need to dig a little bit deeper into the numbers and look at some of these performances. They certainly don't feel as overwhelming as they did to start the campaign. Maybe that's because you know the more games they play, the more data that, that opposition teams have on them, the more video they can watch to try and work out game plans to stop Either way, this game was essentially a nil-nil game that was won by Danny Rose going full 
pantomime. I'm, I'm led to believe from friends on NTT20 Squad that Danny Rose has been doing this his whole career, uh, by which I mean hiding in the goal while the goalkeeper has the ball in his hands, having caught a cross or a set piece or something like that, and, and then running up from behind them as the goalkeeper puts it on the floor to take a long kick. Now, personally, I call this a Dion Dublin, but I think everyone's got a different name for this because it's been done by different players in, in football history. So I guess it kind of depends what the first one that you saw was. Danny Rose did a Dion Dublin, and it's so good to watch back. We've shared it on social. He's genuinely hiding behind the post, just tucked into the side netting. It looks ridiculous. It looks hilarious and of course when you know what's coming it's even more hilarious poor Ben Killip the goalkeeper in goal for Hartlepool he needs to remember that in goalkeeping as in driving automobiles just check your blind spot mate you've got to check your blind spot three points for Stevenage Gillingham nil Northampton two at Jill's defender making a remarkable decision not just to pass the ball straight to a player in Sam Hoskins who had 12 goals in 12 starts, but then just to let him carry it forward without challenge, shift it onto his left foot and give him space to finish well into the top corner. That's what he's been doing all season. 13 goals in 13 starts now is a magnificent record. A 2-0 win, Bowie with the other goal. It's the 11th time Jills have failed to score in 17 league games. It's so grim there. I don't really know what to say other than it seems like another example of, of what we have seen many times before now, which is if you get it wrong in League One and you get relegated, don't expect that to be the end of it. Like if you get relegated broadly, if you get relegated out of the championship, it, it feels completely different to me. Even like a pretty poor side in the championship, I'd expect to be minimum top half in League One, depending on individual circumstances. The same for the Premier League teams, obviously coming down into the Championship. Incredibly rare these days that they finish outside the top eight, the top ten. For League One, I mean, I suppose it's it's because there's more of them. Four teams go down rather than three. But the amount of times we're seeing teams just like have a bad season in League One, they head down to League Two, they're hoping that, you know, they'll, they'll settle, they'll find their feet and find their level. And instead, they're just completely plummeting. And it seems very, very difficult to stop. Um, Gillingham, the latest example. I wonder if you could say the same about Crew Alex. I mean, they won on Saturday. They beat Colchester United 1-0. Very valuable points for them. Colchester, of course, the worst away team in the whole EFL. And they were the better side, Cole you at 0-0 here. Oconquo in goal on loan from Arsenal at Crew with some smart, very important saves. I mean, one very esteemed member of NTT20 squad who's a crew fan was checking relegation odds just before crew's winning goal uh, which was in fairness a beautiful cross from Uwakwe onto the head of Ajay uh, but it's a Kolyu team with one point now from their nine away games in the league they can take something from their performance but a pretty familiar result I think crew fans even in victory feeling like the performance was very very poor uh, and you wonder if they might just might just entertain the thought of an external appointment. Maybe, maybe not. Crawley beat Barrow 1-0. Ashley Naderson with the goal, set up by Dom Telford. It was interesting to me that those two started together. It was the first time in a few weeks that had happened. Naderson and Nichols has been quite a, a fruitful partnership for them, but they've got all three of them in the team now. After that, they had some 
pretty wasteful Barrow finishing to thank. Uh, Barrow still haven't got any points from any games in which they've gone behind. Uh, and they also had to thank their newly fit goalkeeper, Aleri Bolcom. Now, Bolcom's on loan from Brentford. He's been on loan in the EFL before, I think at, at Doncaster, maybe at Burton as well. This is a, a guy who was always involved in, in England youth teams uh, as a young goalkeeper, which he still is, by the way. Uh, and you have to think if someone's involved in those England youth teams, there's something about them, albeit uh, England youth goalkeepers have a, a much different track record as senior players compared to outfield players. Um, but he's very, very athletic, has very, very good uh, reflexes as we saw here. He's also got a, a, a huge kick as we saw in midweek where he assisted Telford against Burnley in the Cup uh, and then a lovely ball out wide to start the move that Crawley scored from here as well on top of some big saves. So Bolcom, the key name here for me, um, could make a, a big difference for Crawley. Lewis Young, the interim, has already had a big impact, making a big difference. 11 points from their five games means Crawley, after their horrific start, are now on one point per game, 17 from 17. There are six teams beneath them. That's been a really good few weeks for Crawley Town. Doncaster with a, a huge away performance to beat Grimsby 3-1. Harrison Biggins with one of the sweetest half volleys we will see this season. It is so perfect and so pure and so beautifully into the top corner of the net. I got a huge smile on my face just thinking about that Biggins goal. I honestly can't imagine what it would have felt like seeing that from the away end. It put them 2-0 up. Uh, Miller had given them the lead. Um, brilliant play from Kyle Noyle to set up both of George Miller's goals. Noyle's a, a right back that at his best I've always liked, but I think his best has always been somewhat patchy over the last few years. At this level, he should be among the better attacking right-backs. And he showed why here with two nice assists for Miller, uh, who's having a good season himself up top for Doncaster. It's only one win in eight at home for Grimsby, which is a peculiar record. Their only bright spot here was the return of John McAtee, uh, one of the best players in the National League last season, Grimsby's star man in promotion. He's now a Luton Town player, but he's back at Grimsby on loan. He's been out with an injury for the last few months, but... Scored a nicely taken goal here. It'll be interesting to see where they fit him into the team. Newport 1, Stockport 2. The Stockport train is, is picking up some quite serious speed, it feels like. They won this one from behind as well, and they've picked up the most points in the league, joint with Stevenage uh, in the last eight games, joint with Leighton Orient in the last six games. They're in great nick. The whole team seems to have found a, a really sort of settled style of play and rhythm. They're a strong team and, and they're getting more goals now. Paddy Madden in very good nick. Kyle Wooten as well. And, and and they get a lot from the attacking central midfield players, from the, from the wing-backs as well. Looking dangerous, I would say, Stockport County, despite their league position only being 12th at the moment. I think we can expect that to only get uh, higher in the next few weeks and months. Rochdale nil, Mansfield won. I had some concerns about Mansfield pre-game based on recent performances, particularly defensively and how open they often found themselves, but that wasn't the case here. I thought Rochdale could hurt them, particularly on the break. That wasn't the case here. Mansfield controlled the game. A really good away performance and a good winning goal. Brilliant cross from Boateng. Maris won it for Mansfield. Bradford had a good away win as well. They've had a few of those this season. 2-0 winners at Sutton. Six wins in nine for Bradford away from home, but only three in nine at home. So Valley Parade form is 
the big area of improvement for Mark Hughes. Uh, I mean, even with that, three wins in nine at home, that's enough for fourth spot at this stage. So um, it, it feels like Bradford are a, a small tweak, a small but sort of solid improvement away from really continuing this this challenge for the top three. Andy Cook made it a dozen for the season. He's one behind Hoskins, but this was all about a brilliant goal from the talented Scott Banks on loan from Crystal Palace. I've spoken about him earlier in the season. He's a left-footed right winger who's very skillful, likes to cut inside and shoot, and he did so fabulously here to get Bradford their second. Sutton not in great shape at the moment, that's fair to say. They've had a few absentees at the back, a few absentees in the middle, and it just feels like the impact of, of any absentee, but certainly three or four key ones, affects Sutton more than maybe any other team at the level with such a, a tight squad as they have. It's only five points from their last 10 league games for Sutton. Swindon won, Tramere won. Uh, two nice goals here. Mary with a beautiful through ball for Hawks to put Tramere ahead. But Romeo Hutton with more great attacking fullback play to set up Wakeling for the equalising goal. Carlisle drew nil all with Walsall. Salford drew nil all with Wimbledon. Come on, League Two. Give us some more goals. <laughs> So I've sort of suggested that it was because of how miserably boring League Two was this week that we decided to enter the the, the waters, the cold waters of the National League. It's not strictly true that uh, I've been really enjoying uh, one of the threads on the Not The Top 20 squad, uh, which is purely for non-league chat. It's amazing how many people who love the EFL and maybe support an EFL team also follow their local non-league club or show a great interest in the fifth, sixth, seventh tiers of, of English football. And unsurprisingly, as we always say about the EFL and the three leagues that we cover, there's a ton of fascinating stories, funny stuff that happens, not so funny stuff that happens, interesting characters, uh, a lot of craziness uh, as well. So I've been wanting to speak to one person in particular about this for a while, and it's uh, Ryan Deeney, who is an NTT20 squad legend, a Birmingham City fan, but also the National League connoisseur, at least the, the best I've seen. At Ryan, thank you for joining us on the pod. Hello, glad to be here. Uh, there wasn't anyone else that I would want to speak about the National League with. Let's start at the top. Uh, the two teams most likely to be in League Two next season uh, at the point of recording are Notts County, who have 44 points from 19 games, 2.32 points per game, and Wrexham uh, on 43 from 19. Uh, let's start with the top team. Notts County have Luke Williams in charge. Listeners of the pod over time will recognise him as, as having been Russell Martin's assistant manager most recently, uh, having left last season, pitched up at Notts County. He was, he was always talked of as being very highly rated as a coach and a tactician. It seems like he's proving all of that with this Notts County team who are setting a crazy pace at the top of the league. Yeah. And do you know what? The thing that surprised me most, I think when he joined this summer, obviously that had Ian Birchnell previously who improved on his philosophy of, you know, trying to play almost like football league, footballing, non-league. They just had this element last year of they were giving away silly goals. They were sort of allowing themselves to lose control in games and struggles particularly away from home or, you know, just particularly during the winter period where they had, you know, a lot of goals seemed to be scored from set pieces and stuff mm -hmm. against them. The thing that's proved the most is sure is 
they've kind of got that bit of steel about them as well. So, I mean, the football's increased tenfold again. You know, the mm. best football inside in the league and for my money, the best football team in the league so far. But the thing that's actually impressed me most is they just seem to have this inner steel about them. They get ahead and they hold on to the leads. They're just not conceding the sort of daft goals they were last year. So, yeah, that's been as much as impressive as um, the actual quality of football they're playing, which with their front three, you come to expect. So are there new players at the back for Notts County who are providing that steal? Or is it or is it a mentality that Luke Williams himself has brought in? I'd probably say it's a mixture of a few things, to be fair. I mean, the lads that brought in, the the summer business, off the top of my head, I believe, was six players from the National League North and South. And then Aidan Baldwin, who was at MK Dons, I believe. And that was their summer business. I mean, the two strikers assigned, Langstaff and Scott, won promotion last year. Um, so I suppose there is that element of, you know, they've brought in guys, even though they're from a division below, have been used to winning football matches. And Badrami and Austin have come from Kidderminster. They had their crazy FA Cup run last year. So there's probably that element. I think there's also an element as well of the players in the building, you know, learning from last season. I mean, they were under Ardley previously, then tried to, I don't want to say there was an overhaul because I did try and play that way, but Birchland obviously increased on that. And I think there was that element of a learning process through, you know, coming back this season and going, right, let's right the wrongs of last season. And so far again, so good. I think it all speaks down to the owners who have come from a data analysis sort of background. I think they've kind of put that process in place. Obviously, they kept Hardy for a couple of years and then I think they stepped up another gear under Birchall last year. Obviously, Ruben Rodriguez has been the standout addition during that time. I think because of the nature of the ownership, they're trying to do it their way. And I think, to be fair, this season, you're probably seeing the fruits of, mm. we've done it our way. This is our philosophy. This is the way we want to do things. We're going to bring in managers that suit what we want to do. We're going to bring in players that suit what the managers want to do. Mm. And slowly but surely, yeah, they just look a stronger and um yeah look as a team as a squad and a team more than anything they look like a yeah much better proposition this year i suppose the theory is that if they do get promoted having taken this process based journey then they'd be in good shape moving into league 2 and, and and just continuing the process and lifting themselves towards the top of that division like a lot of of promoted teams have done rather than just treating it wholly short term just getting in players who you know are going to dominate uh, at this level, but maybe coming into more problems down the line. Now, TV's Wrexham is, is another very impressive points return, 43 from their 19 games. I noticed, Ryan, that they've won nine out of nine at home, Wrexham, scoring like almost four goals a game at the race course, but they have failed to score in four of their 10 away from home. And I'm wondering, does that strike you as too lopsided or is the strength of their squad likely to swallow Notts County up in the long term? This is the difficult thing. I think the one thing I'll probably say about their away record so far is that they have faced, I think it's four of the top seven or eight. So mm-hmm. that has partly had to do with it. I mean, they've lost two games this season. Those two defeats were at Notts County and Chesterfield. Then you see results such as the 1-1 draw against Oval Town and then the 0-0 draw the weekend against Wildstone. And yeah, there's something that just doesn't seem to click for them away from home. But I think at the same time, you probably look at it from a point of view of if they continue to do what they're doing at home, they've got to face all the big boys at home now. Um, and if they can just keep chipping away and picking up points on the road, then they're not in a bad position. Let's chat about a few more teams, EFL-related still, because they are teams we covered so closely over the last few years. Uh, Oldham 
and Scunthorpe United. Uh, now, it's always discussed as being a tough league to get out of. Uh, and by that, we mean promotion. That's because there's only one automatic promotion spot and then a crazy playoff structure with six teams going into the playoff now. But we, we never really talk about at the other end because we don't expect a double relegation from League Two and then again through the bottom of the National League, like we sometimes talk about from League Two all the way to the National League. But Oldham are 21st, Scunthorpe are 22nd as we record today. Can you talk me through what's happening with these two teams and how they're adapting or not, as the case may be, to the National League? I suppose the main thing to say is they came down with managers in John Sheridan and Keith Hill have both since departed. Um, I think slightly different cases. I don't think Keith Hill ever got himself ingrained into what Scunthorpe United were, which I suppose is difficult given the issues they've had over the last few years and the ongoing issue with the takeover. John Sheridan felt more like a stepping off point where he kind of realised that if the club are going to move forward, then they need to move forward without him. I don't know if he made the decision or whether it came from the board or whether it was a mutual thing, but again, they hadn't really started the season particularly well. I think moving forward, it's an interesting one with both clubs because Scunthorpe, as I've just mentioned, have still got the ongoing issue with the takeover and I don't think North Lot's going to get sorted until that point. They've had Tony Dawes has been sort of interim boss ever since Keith Hill left and they started with five draws and a win from the first six games and the performances were improving. Since then, they've lost, I think they've lost each of the last three, they've lost four of the last six now and that sort of regression starting again, which is to be expected with a squad that isn't particularly brilliant and very much lacks depth, obviously, as you saw last season. Um, mm. Once there's an injury or two, that's it. The the kids are sort of being thrown at the deep end, which is tough. For Oldham, they've had their takeover now, which is absolutely yeah. fantastic, and I'm delighted for the club. Obviously, there's still a lot to unpick. They went the route of... Um, they followed a similar route to South End last season, where they tried to bring in a number of experienced players to boost the spine of the squad and sort of work on that way. And it just didn't really work. David Unsworth's taken over as manager. Mm-hmm. But again, I think while he tries to get what he wants across, you're always going to have that difficulty of you're doing it part way through the season. The game's coming thick and fast. You've had the FA Cup as well. It's not easy. And I think it'll probably be, probably won't be until around Christmas time that you actually start to see and understand what a David Underworth team is going to be because they'll start making a lot of changes to the squad in the meantime. Outside of, of the top two, outside of Oldham and Scunthorpe, I really wanted you to just basically unleash knowledge and, and passion onto me and onto us, the listeners. I know that you're not someone who's just caught up in the top teams. You're not someone who's always that just interested in in the drama of of the so-called bigger teams dropping down and struggling you like the the sort of footballing success stories and and those aren't always found at the very top so in terms of other clubs dare I say other managers that you think are impressive that you 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 know you enjoy following their progress um, who would you put forward on that front and tell us about okay so I think from a club's point of view the clubs that you're probably going to be looking at up and around the sort of near the top, aside from Chesterfield and Solio Moores, who have got, you know, money behind them. They've been able to um, bring in players that basically make that push for promotion. I think um, Woken are probably the fifth team in that sense. They've got a little bit of money behind them now. I think over from, um, I want to say America, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but again, they're doing some really good work at the minute. I think they're a club that, I think aside from the top four, they're probably the ones that you probably look at and go, well, they've got a real chance now. I think uh, you were just saying the other week, actually, weren't you, against Oxford? My research consisted of looking at a few numbers, looking at the squad and then asking you about them. But I must say, like I, I really liked what I saw and heard about uh, Darren Saal, uh, the way that the team plays. So what is, what's so impressive about Woking? I quite like Darren Saul's the oval team. They were gritty and aggressive and you knew no team was ever in for an easy game against them. And I think he's got that awoken, but I think with Woking, he's got ultimately better footballers because he's got a better budget. So you're looking at guys he's taken over, such as Rowan Ince, Jermaine Anderson, Scott Buster, obviously Craig Ross is still there. Um, I know a couple of those names are previous AFL guys. And he's brought in Luke Wilkinson, Scott Cuthbert this summer. He's, um, mm. Jack Rolls coming towards the end of last year. Uh, Jim Kellerman from Chesterfield. So he's got a number of, you know, a real strong base to build from. And then you're looking at people such as, um, I think again, a couple of ex-CFL names. James Daly, I've really been impressed with. Kind mm-hmm. of love the, I don't want to put him down his technical ability, but it's the way he just runs himself into the ground. And he scored a goal against Notts County the other week that just summed him up, which was him sprinting 30 yards to close down the keeper and then blocking the keeper's shot and it going in. <laughs> and yeah, um, Reese Gregor Cox, Reese Brown's there now. So really good, athletic, energetic, aggressive sort of team that, again, I don't think anyone's going to want to play this year. Dave, and I think they lost against Notts County and Wrexham, but again, there were, Three two losses at home, you know, give it a real good go. Uh, who else are the, are the type of team that would be easy to get behind? I think because of the ownership, it's difficult to talk about them because I know people have got their thoughts on the way the club's being run and how that relates in terms of them still buying players and signing players and stuff. I know they're under embargo again at the minute, but Southend United pushing towards the top of the league again, and Kevin Mayer and so Stan Collymore and John Still are pretty much on the board now. And they brought in Kevin Mayer as a club legend. Um, Darren Curry, who was ex-Barnet manager and also had some time with um, Sheffield United. And since they've come in, they've done a real good job of making Southend a real good team. Just just a really good football team, to be honest. Um, very difficult to break down. They've only conceded 13 goals this season. So I think them doing that against all the issues they're having off the pitch, which is still an ongoing rumbling saga, is testament to the work those managers have done. Um, I think if people are looking for something a bit more fun, then you can't look past, look past Dorky Wanderers. <laughs> they're one of the three-part team, time teams in the division. Um, I think a lot of people have come across them due to the uh, bunch of amateurs series that's on YouTube. They're just pure chaos. It's <laughs> I, I don't know the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but they're involved in pretty much, there's five goals a game, scoring goals for fun, they're conceding goals for fun. They've just got a very much an approach of if, if we're going to win, if we're going to succeed, then, you know, majors, Mark White's very much, I'm going to do it my way and everyone's going to follow. And yeah, they're absolutely barmaid. They'll lose 5 0 one week, win 4 2 the following week. And you can't fault a team like that, really, can you? <laughs> 75 goals total in their games in 18 yeah. matches, uh, 33 of them scored by them. I think there's only three teams, maybe four teams who have scored more than them in the league. Um, no one has conceded more than them, um, equal with with Maidstone. So I think you're definitely right. They are the, the fun team to follow, that's for sure. And and if you like your digital content as well, that's just an added bonus with the, the YouTube channel. I, I wanted to tease some, some player names out of you, either your favourite or just the best performing players 
uh, in the division across the pitch. It'd be great to hear about some names who, who maybe we'll see find their way to the EFL in the next few years. I mean, I think if you're looking towards the best, obviously you're looking towards the top sides, which is where you're going to find, um, I mean, Macaulay, Langstaff and Paul Mullin are probably the outstanding names in terms of um, you know, the ones everyone's looking at at the moment. Ruben Rodriguez, uh, not to count, I think is the best player in the division. I know he's been courted by EFL clubs. Mm. Jeff King at Chesterfield and obviously Kabongo Shimanga, who's just coming back from a broken leg. Aaron Hayden as well, who's I think in the top seven of the goal scorers list, even though he's yeah. a centre-half. <laughs> <laughs> Looking a bit further down, um, I've kind of tried to look at this from a sort of you know position point of view. And I know when I was having a nose, um, I'm a big fan of Dan Giola, who's absolutely a goalkeeper. Okay. Um, Giola the goaler. <laughs> um He's at Maidenhead United. Obviously, he's had stints at Wigan Athletic, I think um, Stoke and Peterborough as well, and never really got a kick there. He joined Maidenhead halfway through last season. Defensively, they were torrid. They conceded um, 38 in 19 games. And I know he hasn't played every single game, but their record since he's joined, he's conceded, they've conceded 29 goals in 26 games the back end of last season. Um, they've conceded 22 in 19 this season. He's just brought... I mean, he's a quality goalkeeper, but it just seems like he's brought a bit of an assuredness as well. Whereas last season, they had a couple of goalkeepers who were a bit, um, you know, just helped create a little bit of chaos and errors and, you know, made the team look a little bit nervous. Um, so he's kind of been the, uh, just a player, I think, since he's come down. Obviously, given it's his first big break, I think he's done really well, particularly, again, for a part-time club in the league. Elsewhere, I think from a defensive point of view, I've quite enjoyed um, Tyler Corden and Brennan Camp this year. So Tyler Corden is an older shot. Mm. Um, had a loan spell at Southend in the AFL, I believe. Are they both Bournemouth kids? I think they might be. Yeah, they Def- are actually, yeah. Cord- I've got to say, I wasn't a huge fan. Um, he had a real torrid time at Weymouth last year, but since he's gone to older shot, he just looks like a completely different footballer. I don't know if he's fitter. He looks physically stronger he's able to um show his technical ability a bit more so he's really impressed and Brennan Camp's um a real fiery aggressive right back type type who um you know once he gets run he just does everything at 100 miles an hour and once he gets running he's quite difficult to stop down that right hand side so he's kind of I mean he had a decent spell last year but he's really caught the eye again this year mm-hmm. um so yeah quite looking forward to see how he gets on I suppose looking a bit further ahead, Greg Ollie at Gateshead's one that's really stood out. I, th- I don't know the exact number, but I know people talked about his assist record in the National League North last year. Hmm. Um, been a little bit slower this year, but Gateshead are, you know, the bottom of the table. They are struggling to sort of pull victories and win those games. But he's a player who just, he's just always on the half turn. He's always looking to play forward, always trying to create something. He's actually Gateshead's captain. Mm-hmm. and he's got four assists so far this season I think he's a player again who the more he plays I think the more Gateshead plays such a fluent style that I think they will grow into the season I think as they grow into the season sort of improve I think he'll really his ability will shine even more Ryan Colclough's a name that a few EFL fans are going to know from previous <laughs> my 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 memory of Colclough in the EFL was very dribbly gets a lot of shots off but if that's not working, can be quite frustrating as a result. <laughs> it, it it's basically his entire game at older shot. Once he sorry at Altringer, um, once he gets within thirty yards of goal, it's get half a yard and put a shot away. Whether it's on his right foot, left foot, whatever side he's on. Um, I think the 
the actual Vanarama Twitter page posted a stat the other week of the number of dribbles. And I think it went something ridiculous like, I think Barney and I can't think of the other one was, that was second and third at around 60 to 65. And Colcliffe was top with about 100. <laughs> it, it, it's, that's his, you know, that's his entire game. Get it out of his feet and have a go. I've mentioned James Daly, and I think um, I know for Junior Marais as well, another ex-AFL oh, yeah. player. Um, signed for Kings in the start of last season. It just never worked for him. Just looked like a player who's dropping down the leagues and just weren't going to happen for him. But what seemed like a bit of a surprise move to Dagnum and Redbridge at the time. Um, since he's joined, him and McCallum struck up a real good partnership towards the end of last season. Again, I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but I think it was something like that scored 23 goals in 15 games or it was something along those lines. Um, and this season so far, even though the Daggers haven't been brilliant, he's got eight goals, he's got four assists from um, just over the 1390s. And just searing pace. Mm. So he's just someone who, you know, again, very difficult to pin down. There'll be some people listening who support EFL clubs who may have some loanees in the National League. Are there any EFL-owned loanees in the National League that have caught your eye this season? Rob Bapter, I know, had a really good spell at Chester last year. Um, he's on loan at Scunthorpe from Blackpool. And again, a player who, he joined Scunthorpe shortly after, um, or I think it might have been at the end of Keith Hill's reign. And he's just sort of like the one player that just gives them something just basically makes them look a little bit more like a more exciting football team, which for a side that's struggling so badly, you know, you kind of I'd imagine as the match going fan, you're looking forward to seeing that one player, you know, is mm-hmm. going to pick the ball up, run at someone, maybe get a shot away, create something. Dylan De Silva's joined Torquay from QPR and he's having a real flying start, raw pace. He's played, I think, left back, left wing back, left wing, uh, right wing the other day, scored twice. Yeah, he's got something about him he has and um, I suppose the other one going back to Walshingham is uh, Chris Conclark mm-hmm. had a short spell there last year it reminds me a little bit of Dan Crowler very small technically gifted can play right or central or left likes to try and get the odd shot away but is always looking to probe and pass and progress the ball um, so yeah player I do like he's on loan from Fleetwood isn't he Ryan mate thank you so much you, you run a, a Twitter account a blog called NL Musings uh, which we follow uh, I love whenever you find the time and your busy schedule to to write something up it's always creative with lots of detail exactly the sort of football content that uh, I love to read so definitely go and follow Ryan at NL Musings um, you can chat to him on NTT 20 squad if you fancy uh, signing up Ryan's one of many on there who love chatting uh, about non-league football we have our own dedicated thread for it on the NTT 20 squad which you can join uh, using the link in the description of this podcast Ryan Deeney Thank you very much for joining us. No problem, Alec. I'll speak to you on the squad.